Well, let's turn again to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's been a long time since I got a lot of feedback on what I said in a sermon before I preached the sermon. And uh, this is one of those times. I had so many questions uh, um, uh, today about it, and even a few weeks ago when we announced that this would be the, the experiment that we were going to look to Solomon to understand. Remember, the, this Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes is, is different than any other book. It's in the wisdom literature, the genre of wisdom um, uh, understanding. So it's giving us insights into life that we would not have without divine enablement. Even common sense can be lost sense without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, without divine revelation. A lot of what Solomon says in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you could figure out by trial and error. But when you combine using Solomon's trial and his error with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in putting this book together for us, that provides for you and me amazing insight into the issues that he addresses. He's um, set aside the first uh, dozen or so or 11 uh, verses in chapter 2 to describe an experiment that he conducted. Now, this was an experiment that was a misapplication, though God used it, of his wisdom. We find out in 1 Kings 3 and 4, he was supposed to be using his wisdom. This is what he asked for wisdom for, so that he would rule the people well and give leadership to the nation and also to discern right from wrong. Well, he did that, and he does that even here. But here, when he talks about his mind as guiding him and his wisdom was with him, his mind and his wisdom are standing beside him. What he's saying is I'm using my divinely inspired and given insight and wisdom to test the world. I want to test the world of pleasure. I want to see what in this world there are in terms of its offerings and pleasures that can give me satisfaction. In the first two verses, he tried fun. And uh, I took a shot and beat up a little bit uh, the gaming industry. There are so many more applications of that than just, than, than just gaming. Um, it can be uh, 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 hunting or fishing, uh, one of my hobbies. It can be watching sports. It can be novel reading. It can be 10,000 things that we do for fun, uh, amusement parks. None of those things in and of themselves represent evil or wrong. However, when we put stress on them, when we pursue those pleasures... For the purpose of distraction, for the purpose of escape, for the purpose of satisfaction, independent of God, or even instead of God, that's the challenge. Well, he applies that same principle to the issue of alcohol and intoxication in verse 3. He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate with wine, stimulate my body rather, with wine, while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I'm quite sure that in the next few minutes, I'm gonna say some things that will sound entirely too strong for some people. And I'm also gonna say some things that you're gonna feel like aren't strong enough. Because anytime you deal with this subject, which has become a liberty in, in, our, in our society, in our culture, of drinking alcohol, you instantly fall into, it's easy to fall into one of two extremes, legalism or licentiousness. 
legalism saying, uh, absolute no, if, you even, um, uh, if you've eaten Italian food with wine in it, you might go to hell. That's just a hyper-legalist who says that, that um, any kind of fermentation is from the devil. I heard a sermon one time that, uh, uh, growing up in my little Baptist church that fermentation comes from hell. Oh, so much for bread and yeast, right? One of the difficulties of Bible exposition, is, honestly, is uh, preaching that moves from the past to the present, from the historical to the contemporary, and from the specific to the universal, from the particular nuances of, of the situations in the Bible to the universal principles that we bring into our lives and in our days, especially when it comes to implications and applications. Let me go to the end of um, some of the applications right from the very beginning here. There are some people for whom the drinking of alcohol short of uh, intoxication is not a problem, not a sin. There are other people for whom drinking short of intoxication is sin, and it's a problem. Now, if I can just tease you to stick around Mission Road for a few years, when we get to Romans 14, that's exactly what Paul's describing. (laughs) I did say chapter 14. Um, But his point, by the way, before we even enter into this, his point is you can't judge someone. What happens in this kind of context, before we even look at Solomon's experiment and we talk about drinking, it's almost like those who would raise their hand in worship. It's, you have the doers and the not doers, the, 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 uh, part- the participants and the non-participants, the drinkers and the non-drinkers. And one group can judge the other for not doing what they do. And the point of Romans 14 is stop judging one another. There is a reason that you should set aside that liberty. He gets to that later in the text. But there's also a reason to stop judging one another. God's a very effective judge, wouldn't you say? Uh, I've read the scriptures. There are no spare thrones beside his right or left for you or me. Remember uh, uh, James and John wanted those thrones. Uh, They they actually sent their mom to say to Jesus, hey, when you enter into the kingdom, can we sit on the right and the left? Solomon, though, let's back up from the, I'll jump to the application. Let's come back to the specific uh, interpretation here. Solomon says, okay, the, the world that I live in has a lot of pleasure. He started with just fun. What can, I, what can I do that's fun? Maybe I'll get satisfaction out of fun. And you know what he found? It was Hebel, H-E-B-E-L. And sometimes you can say the Hebrew word Hebel. It's just kind of a soft B, which meant that it was, it was there for a moment and gone. It was transitory. He didn't say it was wrong in and of itself. He said what happens is it doesn't bring satisfaction. Let's go back to the illustration I, I beat up in our last study. The game always ends. And even if it doesn't end, you got to sleep eventually. Let's go to the game that we watched some this, this afternoon. The, the game ends, or sometimes it's in the middle of the game and you're faithful and you stop and uh, come to church. The ride always stops. The music always stops. In other words, there's no pleasure we can pursue or test that brings us ongoing lasting satisfaction. And the challenge is when we do that, and here's a good way to tell if you're putting too much uh, uh, power into last time uh, the um, uh, experiment on fun or this time and the coming ones on uh, different pleasures. 
has it become an idol? Now, by an idol, that means simply this. You will sin in order to enjoy it or be with it or do it. Or you'll sin because you can't. You'll sin to get it or you'll sin because you don't get it. That's the test. So it, uh, I have idols in my life. I have idols in my heart that I, and my idols are, are, they have special power. They resurrect themselves. Just as soon as I think I'm done with that, it comes up again. And such is the case in these pleasures. Here he tries alcohol, not specifically alcohol, but intoxication. Look at what he says. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body. Now, just for a moment, look at what he says. While my mind was guiding me wisely. What he's, he's not saying, I got drunk in a wise way and it was okay. What he's saying is my wisdom helped me make the conclusion that what I was doing was folly, is the word he uses, foolishness. There was no good for any son of men to do this under heaven the years of their life. What did he do? The Hebrew is pretty interesting there. It says, how to stimulate my body with wine. I explore in my mind how to do that. And then he says, how to take hold of folly. This indicates that Solomon uh, experimented with different levels of intoxication. How to make his mind more drunk and less drunk. What would that do? And we know this is more than one night of a drunken uh, binge because he says in the end, until he kept doing this, until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. He said, I kept testing this thing till I knew what it was producing. Very simple, he was being intoxicated. He says that, how to stimulate my mind, how to change my mental uh, state of being through drinking. It's very clear. He's talking here, make no mistake, about drunkenness. Now, here's the problem before we even start thinking into uh, application. Uh, I've talked to two, several doctor friends of mine who, uh, who understand the physiology way better than me. And, and they all say the same thing. You cannot let the government tell you that point whatever is public intoxication. Some people can have a blood level account of that. And, and maintain uh, thinking in a better way than others. Some people can have a lot less than that at blood alcohol content, and it can have a stimulating effect on their minds. So from the very beginning, what I'm saying is drunkenness physiologically is an individual issue. You say, where do you become drunk? I don't know. Except that it changes and alters your mood and mind. That's what Solomon says here. It stimulated his body with wine, and his mind was was making an observation of this. His conclusion to this experiment with, with intoxication, by the way, that's the exegesis. That's, that's all we can do with this experiment. He tried it, and guess what he found from his drunkenness? Verse 11, I considered all my activities, the experiment I had just done, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and guess what? Behold, all was, there's our word, vanity, there and gone, striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. It didn't advance anything. There was no profit. Now, with that, I want to just take some time for the next little bit and talk about drunkenness. I think what we're going to do tonight, because I'm not going to be able to get through all this, is uh, we'll talk about drunkenness tonight, and then uh, two weeks from tonight, after the, uh, the concert, we'll talk about um, the issue of 
just social drinking in general, and is that wise or not? Is that sinful or not? That's a pretty good tease for you to come back, right? Let's ask ourselves this, and I hope this is pretty straightforward. What does God say, what does God think about getting drunk? Now, as soon as I say that, remember that that, that is not a, a clinical condition that can be defined by a, a blood alcohol level by a government. It's just not true. Um, I grew up around a lot of drinking. I knew um, some family members, extended family members, who could have uh, one beer and they were different people. I knew others who could have a lot more than that and they didn't seem, seem to change at all. So we have to understand that this is an individually applied um, definition even of drunkenness except for this. It changes your thinking, it alters your thinking, influences your thinking and or your mood. It stimulates your body. You, it, the bottom line is you can tell that you've had this alcohol. That's starting to move into the issue of influence. Well, let me give you a list of uh, things that God says about drunkenness. Uh, I'll give you seven, okay? Uh, what does God say about getting drunk? This should be just yawning um, no-brainers for most of you. Number one, drunkenness brings no lasting satisfaction. We learned that from Solomon. Drunkenness brings no lasting satisfaction. Now, footnote, we can also add to this any kind of uh, mind-altering drugs or, or pot, marijuana. We can also add this to the level. His issue was not the substance, but stimulating his mind. Drunkenness, Solomon concludes, brings no lasting satisfaction. No one, no drunk who I've ever known has gotten drunk one time, uh, if, if this is his habit, and said, you know, uh, I've experienced all I want to with alcohol, I'll never drink again. Typically, those who have an issue with drunkenness have an issue with continuing to get drunk. Solomon's conclusion, don't bother. It's not gonna bring you lasting satisfaction. The list gets even more penetrating. Number two, drunkenness is a Sin, it's not a disease. Drunkenness is a sin, it's not a disease. Turn over to Ephesians chapter five, very familiar text uh, that I'm sure all of you know, probably memorized. Uh, the imperative could not be more clear. Ephesians five, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But instead, be filled with spirit. Now we find out something interesting about Paul's understanding of drunkenness. He's talking about influence. Do not take wine to the point of it influencing your mind in the same way that you want the spirit of God to influence you. Meaning it makes a change in your judgment, in your, in your evaluation of the sensory perceptions that you're, you're taking in. Drunkenness is a sin, not a disease. Now let me say something about that. I could recognize, I don't have any trouble saying that some people have a genetic predisposition for drunkenness or what we would commonly call alcoholism. The Bible just calls it drunkenness. The fact that there may be a, a, a genomic thread that you can look at a person's a DNA and say they, are more, they have a gene that predisposes them to that, we would expect that, wouldn't we? Our genes are broken by the fall. Someone may have a predisposition or an, a, a physical inclination for this and others may for other sins. That doesn't change the gospel answer or remedy one bit. We're broken inside and out, genetically and in a macro fashion. We are 
messed up by sin in every possible way. So if someone says, well, look, I can't help uh, being an alcoholic because that's my, that's my DNA. Let me say this. The gospel is stronger than your DNA. Christ is stronger than your DNA. The Holy Spirit, as we study this morning in Romans, dwelling within us is more powerful and can have more control than your genetic predispositions. Number three, drunkenness identifies a fool. Let's take a little, uh, little tour through Proverbs. Drunkenness identifies a fool. We could look at dozens and dozens of texts, but I want to look at two specifically. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Now, let me just take a little aside for a minute because, unfortunately, I have read and I've heard preached and I've heard um, uh, explained over and over that you need to understand that um, the wine in... I had a guy I went to school with uh, years, years ago in a Bible institute who was telling me that the wine that Jesus made in, in John... Uh, was not alcoholic. It was just grape juice. It's really. He says, yeah, because, you know, wine is okay. It's the strong drink. And he came to some of these passages, not this one, and just says, see, strong drink is what the Proverbs Solomon uh, uh, excludes from permissibility, and, and that's, that's the heavy liquor. Well, this verse destroys that. It's wine and strong drink are mockers and brawlers. In other words, it's the issue of using anything that's fermented for the purpose of intoxication. It identifies you as foolish. And to be honest, all of us can think of people we've seen intoxicated and they define foolishness. Look at Proverbs 23, verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Here's the answer. Those who linger long over wine. The idea is they linger long over it enough to get intoxicated. Those who go to taste mixed wine. They're using it as a recreational sport. And in doing that, it has an effect on them. Do not look on wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it goes down smoothly, at the last, it bites like a serpent, stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. Very interesting, the conclusion in verse 35. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? In other words, when will I sober up? How do we know that? Because he says, well, I'll seek another drink. I've talked to, counseled, and, and involved myself with relationships with many people who, who um, would say they struggle with alcoholism. The Bible says they struggle with drunkenness. 
And all of them say this last phrase, this verse 35 is so true. The minute you start to sober up, the first thing your body wants is, what does this text say? Another drink. Your cure for being drunk is to get drunk again. It identifies you as a fool. And that plays right into what Solomon says. It doesn't bring satisfaction. What can the sons of man profit from this under the sun, he says. Number four is important. Because number four was very important when I was a college pastor. Because I saw it play out so many times in so many ways. Number four, drunkenness sidelines inhibitions. Drunkenness sidelines inhibitions. Hosea chapter four. If you can find that very quickly. He says, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. Literally, they take away your heart. They take away your discernment, your judgment. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away understanding. It's not by accident that he groups sexual sin in with drunkenness. We'll see that in just a moment in Habakkuk. It just takes away your understanding. Why would you want to take away your judgment, Hosea is saying? This is... You're suspending the very part of your soul that the Holy Spirit intends to animate for his glory. Now turn over to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Or as I was just in Singapore, Habakkuk, as they say. Habakkuk chapter 2. This is such a sad verse to me. We see it played out in the news all the time. We're seeing it played out in the news right now with a very prominent um, uh, entertainer and comedian who is accused of this verse. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15. Woe to you who make your, drum, your, your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. In other words, he's saying, th- this is nothing new that people would use a mind-altering substance, alcohol, and in the current case, in the, in the headlines, uh, drugs. Use a mind-altering substance to soften up someone's inhibitions to take advantage of them sexually. It happens on the college campus every single day. God says, woe to you. Verse 16, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. He's saying that becoming drunk sidelines your inhibitions. I've seen it. You, you have seen it, haven't you? People get some alcohol going in, in, their, in their system and suddenly they're, they're different people than they were. They weren't shy. They were shy and now they're uninhibited. They'll do things that they would not do when they were sober. Such a sad reality. It goes all the way back to the time of Habakkuk. Drunkenness sidelines your inhibitions. And specifically here, it's in a sexual sense, in a sexual nature. Number five, drunkenness brings tragedy. Drunkenness brings tragedy. We could go on for an hour on this. Genesis 9, 21, Noah became drunk and his nakedness was exposed and they acted shamelessly. Nabal becomes drunk in a crucial time and God takes his life in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 
Elah became drunk and he was murdered by Zimri in 1 Kings 16. Some were even coming to the Lord's table. And this is how we know that that first century wine was indeed wine. Some were coming to the Lord's table in the first century, 1 Corinthians 11, 21 to 34. And some of them were becoming drunk from drinking at the Lord's table. That brought judgment there. It brings judgment in these other narratives. Solomon, is, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is saying that drunkenness brings tragedy. There's nothing good that comes from it. I'm very tempted to talk about, and we don't have time tonight, uh, my experiences in 14 years of being a, a pastor to some, a, a lot of college students over those years, thousands of college students over those years. And seeing this played out, the, the majority of people who later uh, after college struggled uh, because of um, alcoholism or drunkenness is because they began experimenting in these kind of situations of sidelining inhibitions, finding tragedy when they were in college. It was kind of a way you grew up. And if that's growing up, Solomon says you're pretty foolish. Number six. Drunkenness disqualifies a man from spiritual service. Drunkenness disqualifies a man from spiritual service. You could say spiritual leadership at any level. First Timothy chapter three is, uh, is the passage we all know as giving the qualifications for elders. In verse three, it says, he's not to be addicted to wine. He's not to have a problem with Wine. Here, by, by the way, it doesn't even say that he gets drunk. It just says he, he, this can't be something that he just partakes in without self-control. Why? Because it can stain his reputation. Please notice, it doesn't say anything here in verse 3 about becoming drunk. It just says, be careful as a spiritual leader that drinking alcohol, this was in this day when it was very common, that drinking alcohol in a, in a habitual, patternistic way becomes reputational for you. Titus 1.7, same issue. Um, he's setting in order the, the elders there on Crete. He says, for an overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, same phrase. Not someone who is, is known for constantly drinking. Not someone who can't push his, his glass away from the table. Drunkenness specifically disqualifies a man from, from spiritual leadership, but you can go even beyond that and say, a problem with not being able to say no to alcohol disqualifies a man from spiritual leadership. And we can take it from this. It becomes, taking even the, the, the whole list away from the, the spiritual leaders here, it becomes an issue of reproach because all of these are characterizations of being above reproach. And uh, Timothy and Titus are, are, are both being told by Paul, make sure that those who are in spiritual oversight don't have reputations associated with the persistent drinking of alcohol. You're not addicted to it. Addicted here we can't think of in a clinical sense that we look at today. Addicted means habitual. It's just a very simple term. Number seven. This is the big one. You got your seatbelt on. Number seven. Drunkenness, by the way, 
before I finish number seven, we're, we're talking about drunkenness, not, the, not the, the act of an alcoholic beverage rolling over the back of your tongue and entering into your stomach. You understand? We're talking about drunkenness tonight. We'll talk about that alcoholic beverage rolling over the back of your tongue in two weeks, but we're not talking about that tonight. We're talking about drunkenness. Drunkenness, number seven, reveals an unsaved soul or an unsaved person. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter five. First, uh, remember the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul giving a royal spiritual spanking to the church at Corinth. Uh, he begins um, in the, the first um, uh, few verses, I think the first nine verses or so, being gracious to them. And the rest of the book, he says, you better buckle up. And he lets them have it. In 1 Corinthians chapter five, Look at verse nine. I wrote my letter to you not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, nor the covetous or swindlers, nor with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He says, I'm talking about uh, associating with people in the church who have these issues. He says, you can't expect the world not to act like the world. That's how we have, that's who we evangelize. That's the mission field. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. That's another sermon. Uh, The pursuit of immorality reveals an unsaved soul as well. Or covetous, or an idolater, or reviler, or a, what's the word? Drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now look over at chapter six, one of my favorite passages. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not enter to the, enter the kingdom of heaven? Chapter six, verse nine. The kingdom of God, rather. In other words, unrighteous people who live according to the flesh as the pursuit of their life, they, they reveal that their, their soul is not saved. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor, there it is, drunkards, nor revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then that great passage, that great tense of the verb in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Is that, I mean, we could look at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 6, Galatians 5 on the issue of self-control, Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. All of these talk about self-control with relation to drunkenness and say that an unsaved person, or rather this, a drunkard is an unsaved person. Footnote. Does that mean if um, you were somewhere, uh, let me make up a scenario, you were at a wedding, someone poured you uh, wine and you crossed the line because you didn't know your line and you got drunk that you're not gonna go to heaven now. That's not what this is saying. Drunkenness is a pursuit. It's a state that you seek on purpose. It's something that, as we learn in Proverbs, when you, when you cease from being that way, you want to get that way again. Footnote to the footnote. Does this mean, because I was, I was just asked this, does this mean that anything and everything that alters your mind falls under this category? Boy, I hope not if I'm going into surgery. I want my mind severely altered if I'm gonna go into surgery. 
I want to be somewhere else in a, in a galaxy far, far away. Um, does this mean that anything that gets you a little tipsy or not thinking clearly is wrong? Boy, I hope not. I have suffered for the last decade with kidney stones. During those times, I have enjoyed little things that doctors write on little pieces of paper that I take to this place called a pharmacy and they give me things that make me able to actually stay alive and not claw the wallpaper off. It's not talking about that. Paul told Timothy, take some wine for your stomach. Um, uh, We'll look uh, next week, or next study, about the fact that um, there's even a place for intentional drunkenness. Solomon says in Proverbs, if you know someone's dying, sedate them. It's gracious. It's merciful. It's a pain reliever. That's okay. That's a different scenario than pursuing it for satisfaction. So let's just be clear what we're saying tonight because we're going to stay in line with Solomon and Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He tried drunkenness and said it's habel. It's, it's steam off coffee. It's gone. It, de- it doesn't satisfy. And the rest of the Bible confirms that the pursuit of being drunk is un questionably a sin. Frankly, I don't know any one of my, my friends who, uh, who drink socially or recreationally or, or for enjoyment who would even argue that drunkenness is okay. So I, I'm not creating a straw man. But I, I am creating a biblical mandate for us that we have to understand drunkenness out of bounds. As soon as we say that though, and we'll study this next time, that doesn't mean that there's not a medicinal use for things that would cease, uh, uh, would cause us to experience painless. You have to be careful there, though, because, as you know, um, even the participation in that, uh, when the, the, the pain doesn't go away, can lead to addictions. There's all sorts of, of uh, nuances that we can explore as well. Bottom line is Solomon tried drunkenness. He got himself drunk, observed his findings, actually recorded. I can see him in his court with all of his, the, his attendants, and he was saying, okay, here's, here's one glass, two glass, three glasses, four glasses, here I feel. Okay, let's do this tomorrow. Let's try this out. Let's see this over and over to see what levels are, if any of it brings me satisfaction. And you know what his conclusion was? I got drunk, and it wasn't good. As we'll see in our next study, he should have known that. Because kings were to be teetotalers. The law forbids the kings from even getting near intoxicating substances. So for Solomon, this was out of balance from the beginning. The rest of the scripture plays on Solomon's um, experiment and says, let's, be, let's, let's, let's look at our baseline. Can we all agree that drunkenness is sin? That's exactly what what the scripture tells us. So your next question is, okay, what about my anniversary? With a nice piece of steak. And I don't know, don't answer this out loud if you drink red or white with that. If you answer out loud, you're gonna, don't answer out loud right now. And you want that nice glass of wine. Is that sin? Well, come back and I'll let you know what the Bible says. And wait till we get to Romans 14 and... A while, and uh, we'll, t- we'll talk about that. We'll have some answers next time. Uh, what if, uh, what if you're, you're watching your favorite NFL game and you want a beer? Is that sin? 
Let me give you a hint. For some people, yes. And for other people, no. And you say, who are those people? You got to come back in two weeks and we'll tell you who those people are. Well, this is a, a, an interesting study. We're going to take that little aside to, to talk about, um, I don't know, what, what, can we call it social drinking and recreational drinking, just drinking for the purpose of uh, whether, when uh, drunkenness is not involved. And the Bible gives us principles to talk about uh, these things in these categories. Um, I will tell you this. In two weeks when we make these conclusions, some of you are going to come up and you're going to say, I can't believe you're so legalistic and you would say that. Others of you are going to come up and say, you weren't nearly strong enough. I mean, if you've ever bought wine for um, an Italian dish, then you better repent or face church discipline. Where we are will not make everyone happy, but I hope where we are is where the Bible leads us. We We want to believe and teach what the Bible says, all the Bible says, and lastly, no more than what the Bible says says. Uh, I've never pre-teased a sermon so much in all my life, but two weeks from tonight, uh, we'll talk about that. Father, give us grace and understanding. We're so grateful that we can participate in your table uh, tonight and celebrate the gospel. Make that a fresh awareness in our, our lives to love the sacrifice that you made for us, to love the power of the resurrection, to love you because you first loved us and demonstrated your love so differently than the world. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. It's clear, Father, that we should not use anything to intentionally alter or influence our mind because we want all of our faculties available to you, your Holy Spirit, your service. So as we study this uh, tonight and apply these things tonight and even in two weeks come back to this, I, I want to ask for, for my own sermon and preaching that we would go as far as your word goes and no further and that all of us would land where you teach the Romans in chapter 14 that we would not be judges of one another about the issues of liberties. Teach us, guide us, influence us. Guard us from legalism and licentiousness. We want to be like our Lord Jesus, wise and understanding. We pray this in his name. Amen.